Hello and welcome to Overdrive, a program that tries to spread the word about trains, planes and automobiles. I'm David Brown and in this program we have news stories about car sales in Australia and the supply problems. Australia goes hard on side impact protection and the Mitsubishi plug-in hybrid small SUV. In the feature story, Tony Webber from the Federal Chamber of Automotive Industries defines what is needed to embrace the future including a better election process. Alan Zervis gives his rundown on the Mitsubishi Eclipse Cross, especially the plug-in hybrid electric vehicle. And in quirky news, Brian Smith and I raise concerns over transport issues that indicate another Viking invasion of Scotland. Maybe. There's always more information at drivenmedia.com.au. Our previous programs are available as podcasts on Spotify or iTunes. Or there's our Facebook page, Overdrive City Driven Media. But to start this program, let's have the news. Vehicle sales figures in Australia for November 2021 show a second month of decline as manufacturers fight to get enough stock. There may be some opportunity buying choices where supply dictates a few people take their second choice. For example, four-wheel drive ute sales are down 5%, while two-wheel drive utes are up 14% compared to November 2020. Tiny micro-passenger car sales are booming. But it can depend on when the delivery boats come in as Tony Webber, Chief Executive from the Federal Chamber of Automotive Industries, noted. That might be the case. The other scenario there is it may be a supply issue, i.e. when the boat comes in. So demand for each might be consistent, but because the supply of it comes in in a lumpy fashion, that may well be driving this. And for instance, one of the brands had a very poor month about two months ago, and I spoke to the person, and they said they're not concerned at all. They had three boats that docked at the end of the month and therefore supply for the following month would be quite strong. So that's why it's very difficult to make any analysis on the short-term statistics. The current difficulties with the car industry are heavily impacted by a limitation in the supply of microprocessors. The Federal Chamber of Automotive Industry says that some new vehicles sold in Australia can require up to 3,000 of these parts. Their chief executive, Tony Webber, puts the supply problem in a broader perspective. A lot of people around the world are buying products at the moment because they haven't been able to travel and spend their money like they traditionally do at restaurants and through trips. And that's a worldwide phenomenon and therefore they're buying Luxury items such as computers and iPads and mobile phones and even fridges and they all need semiconductors and in addition to that cars as they become more and more complex need more and more semiconductors and therefore at the moment demand worldwide outstrips supply. Australian Design Rule 85 toughens up the side impact requirements of vehicles. It came into effect in November 2017, but only for the newly introduced passenger cars. 
A year later, the same applied to light goods commercial vehicles with a gross vehicle mass below 3.5 tonnes. As of the 1st of November this year, all new passenger cars built after 2017, no matter how old the design, will have to comply. Similarly, all new light commercial vehicles will have to meet the standard a year later in November 2022. Many cars meet the new standard, but a number of specific models have been removed from sale because the manufacturers say the cost of engineering the improvements would be too expensive just for the Australian market. Cars that have been taken off the market include the Lexus IS sedan, RC Coupe and CT Hatch, the Mitsubishi Mirage compact sedan, the Nissan GTR and Renault's Alpine sports car. Mitsubishi's second entrant in the small SUV category is the Eclipse Cross. The Eclipse has a modern design and has newer technology, including a plug-in hybrid electric vehicle, FEV model. This has a 2.4-litre petrol engine and two electric motors, one driving the front and one driving the rear wheels. It has a bulging front nose with prominent pods to the side of the grille and with some strong chrome accentuations that would suit the American market. The Eclipse is light and easy to steer, rides well, although the keen driver may find the suspension a bit soft. The FEV can travel 55 kilometres on battery power alone. The petrol engine comes in under heavy acceleration or when the battery is low. Prices, including on-road costs, start at a bit over $30,000 for just a petrol engine, but you have to add an extra $16,000 to get a plug-in hybrid. And that has been the news. We heard a couple of quotes in the news from Tony Webber, the Chief Executive of the Federal Chamber of Automotive Industries in Australia, about supply issues. It is hoped that this is a short-term problem, but what about the longer-term issues and what do we need to do to ensure we have the leadership to make the most of the future? Tony takes up that issue. Well, I think it's inevitable the world is going to move away from petrol and diesel engines and we will ultimately go to zero emission tailpipe outcomes. Now, whether that's full battery electric or hydrogen or some other technology that we're not aware of, we will move away. It's just a matter of when. However, you have a legacy fleet. There's 18 million light vehicles on the road in Australia today and they will be around for 20 plus years and they need to have a fuel supply and therefore it's very important we upgrade petrol and diesel so that we're well standard. The modern trend is to say let's have all new cars electric by a certain year, yet that still leaves a lot of cars on the road that aren't. Or even if it's 50% electric, that's still a lot of new cars that aren't. Absolutely. And that also ignores that there are potential opportunities for significant improvements through the use of petrol and diesel as well. So our position on that's very clear. The whole notion of 50% by 2030 or 2035 of electric vehicles is a ridiculous aim. What is the policy aim? The policy aim is clearly to reduce CO2. Governments should say we should reduce CO2 to X and then put the challenge to the car industry is to supply the product to meet the lower CO2 standard. And then you can 
meet that standard through a raft of technologies. It may be hybridisation, it might be improved internal combustion engines or battery electric. And that might depend on what the consumer wants the car for and where the consumer lives in Australia because if you live in inner Sydney or Brisbane or Melbourne, you might have a completely different technology mix for those who live in regional and rural Australia. And that's what we need to be aware of. It's horses for courses, isn't it? Absolutely. And all these comparisons with Europe are quite foolish, really, because anyone who's been to Europe knows that Europeans drive smaller cars and they travel shorter distances and therefore they have different cars and have had different cars for generations. Is there a role, though, then, to make sure that we don't always buy every car in case we drive from Sydney to Melbourne, because not everyone does it, that we just need to come to a realisation of what is the best car, both for us and for the community, and adapt accordingly? Well, that's right. So what governments should do is they should actually determine what level of CO2 they will allow for the sales in any year for any brand. And then the brand should provide the mix of technologies to their customers to meet that target. Because my target living in regional rural Australia might be very different to someone else's target living in Sydney or Melbourne. It still requires a government to be firm rather than necessarily just stand on the sideline and cheer. Do you think we can be firm enough? Well, certainly governments need courage. And courage would mean that they would set a target rather than sit in the sidelines and cheer. So I think it's very important that we have courage. And it's very important that courage is national rather than state-based. And my fear is we're moving down a state-based system at the moment, which would be suboptimal. State-based means that you've got to try and please seven or so uh, different uh, jurisdictions and laws. There's a commonality we desperately need to make sure that we can serve the market efficiently. Absolutely. And, and the rule shouldn't change if you go five kilometres And that means you're no longer in the state of Victoria, but you're in New South Wales or South Australia. And that's the problem because Australians do move across borders and you cannot have eight different jurisdictions with eight different rules, whether that is in terms of CO2 or even connected and automated vehicles, which are also coming in the pipeline. The car industry is certainly wagging the flag on that, isn't it? That, that it's prepared to make changes. It just wants a level playing field, really, doesn't it? Well, it just wants clarity. It wants policy clarity about what government expectations are, and that should marry up with community expectations. We are going to move to a low, low emission environment. We will have cleaner cars. Let's just sit down and get a roadmap between industry and government to work this through rather than a haphazard approach, which we currently have. And a very short-term approach too, don't we? Absolutely. We've got to look beyond the election cycle, especially when we're less than six months away from it. You would see coming up to the election the need to have a more rational debate rather than just slogans and see if how much I can try and be negative to the other side? We need to take the politics out of it and focus on what what we're really trying to do. And what we're really trying to do is reduce tailpipe CO2. That's the challenge. 
to set targets and let the industry get the technology solutions to meet those targets. It seems to me that uh, if you just sit on the sideline and cheer and it doesn't work, then you've also got someone to blame. Ultimately, governments are elected to govern. Have you been disappointed in the political discussions in the past that have tended to be generalisations and just bland slogans and things rather than necessarily addressing the real issues? I think I'm disappointed in two fronts. One, when this is politicised and we have no action, I think that's a concern. The second issue that concerns me is that people make very broad comments that have very little depth to them. This is quite a complex area and you need to actually understand what you're trying to do and what your policy initiatives is going, what implications it's going to have for motorists. So it needs to be a sophisticated, holistic approach taken to it. And sometimes people take a very simplistic approach and that could end up in quite adverse outcomes that we don't really want. Do you think we tend to do it all as though it's all or nothing and everything's either one way or the other? I think with this issue, the biggest problem has been the politicisation of it. And we saw that at the last election. That this is a complex issue. It needs a sophisticated response and we need to take the politics out of it and we need to think long and hard about how we approach it. But I think ultimately the answer is quite simple and the answer is provide the target to the industry and the, tar the industry will give you many technological solutions to hit that target. That's what we need to do. But you have to set the intent that you want to achieve. That's exactly what other nations around the world have done. The intent is to reduce CO2. So you therefore put a cap on CO2 on average across sales in a year. And you do that at the brand level, and then that becomes the responsibility of the brand. Now, how the brand meets that cap is very much up to them and their marketing. And that gives them an advantage against their opponents in the marketplace. That's what you want. You want to develop a technology-neutral approach that meets the desire, and the desire is to reduce CO2. You're listening to Overdrive. Mitsubishi has two cars in the small SUV segment. One is the ASX. It's coming second in that category and still doing rather well, although it is somewhat of an older design, hasn't been major upgrade recently. And their second one, which is down in ninth place, is their Eclipse, which is a more modern car and has certain versions, such as a plug-in electric hybrid that makes it more modern in the technology it's applying. We've driven both, and Alan Zervis from Gay Carboys joins me on the line to discuss it. G'day, Alan. Thanks, David. How are you? Very well, thank you. Let's uh, get down to some general things and then into the technology. First of all, the looks. It has uh, as a small SUV, which is a growing part of the market, as I say, although the, the much, well, the smaller light segment is absolutely booming. Yes. This segment, uh, it, this one has a fairly aggressive, but not so much over the top as their bigger Outlander. Oh, well, I, I don't know. I, I, I would call it over the top, but the rear especially, I think, is polarizing to say the least not as polarizing now as it was when it first released 
because they've made the rear window just one big piece of glass instead of two, but uh, I would still call it polarising. The front does have that very American boldness of get out of my way, here I come sort of look, doesn't it? With very strong pods on the side with the headlights and uh, fog lights and things and and a very upright uh, uh, grill that makes it uh, very uh, pronounced. They've done it uh, a similar way to as some of the French cars have done it too. They've split the and the Hyundai as well. They've split the daytime running lights and the main headlights and they've given it uh, kind of two different areas. Uh, not something that works for me, I have to say. No. Uh, now, inside, though, and I'd have to say, I was surprised at how comfortable and smooth and relatively low noise, vibration and harshness it had. Well, if you're talking about the drive, absolutely, though, it's a little bit like a bouncy castle. The suspension is quite soft. You can get a trickle charge. It'll take you seven hours to put it in. You can get a mode three, as they say, three and a half hours to get 100%, or the mode four was 25 minutes to 80%. The other thing it does, of course, is vehicle to infrastructure. You can do this bi-directional charging, use it to run your house. Which is what I was talking about before. The They call it vehicle to everything. So it's their kind of, uh, you know, PR speak. But it's vehicle to load, vehicle to device. You can plug it into your house. You can plug it into another EV. And, you know, some poor souls on the side of the road in the middle of the night, they run out of charge. They don't have to get a, a tow. You can just pull up and very quickly give them 10%. It's an interesting concept because then for, say, the person going on a weekend away, camping, for example, they can have enough battery power to boil a kettle, run a, run a small stove or, or other devices, electric devices, with that, and then use the petrol engine to get to and from wherever they want to go. That's right. Well, you could have a full tank of petrol. Theoretically, you'd be able to run enough power to charge all your, you know, your phones, your cameras and what have you, apart from your little uh, LED lights and so forth. Perhaps charge batteries when you're, you know, not using them during the day so you can put them into your torches at night. It's, it, it really does make a huge difference, though it does depend, David, on that petrol engine running properly. And as you know, uh, many times in the past, some cars sit there idling. They, overheat pretty quickly so i'd like i'd be interested to see that what that happens in warmer weather uh very very hot weather perhaps in the middle of the desert uh if you're stranded sounds all very good but not something that you may need to pay attention to they did some research and found that people that have pev phevs plug-in hybrid electric vehicles that 99% of them charge from home and some of those do charge elsewhere but very few only 10% use their work charging points 7% public charging points uh, Mm. and way down to 1% public charging near their work the other ones are public charging near at home so at the moment we're still locked in very much to those who have comfort, convenience, uh, the ease of being able to charge at their home location. Absolutely. Uh, and I, I think part of the problem with at least plugging in at work is someone's got to pay for the power, whereas at home, you know, who's going to pay for it. But as you know, where you are, yes, you can plug in. You've got a PowerPoint you've got access to. At my home, I don't have access to a PowerPoint. PowerPoint. 
Lovely to talk to you. Thanks, mate. Thanks, David. Take care. And that's Alan Service, who is the founder and writer for Gay Carboys, with his particular take on cars and their approach and their resultant pleasing or not so pleasing aspects to the driver. You're listening to Overdrive. Land Rover Defender goes upmarket with its XP400 version. Here is a luxury SUV that has true four-wheel drive capability combined with great performance and exemplary on-road ride and handling. The X version comes with a number of luxury additions such as 14-way electronically adjusted heated front seats, extended contrast leather interior, 20-inch alloy wheels, plus more. For some of my size, larger than the average bear, the Defender is as close to perfect as it gets in terms of fit and comfort. The centre console bin, door arms, reach to the steering wheel, headroom etc. are all spot on for me for relaxed and comfortable driving. The P400 is powered by a 3 litre inline 6 cylinder mild hybrid turbo petrol engine running through an 8 speed automatic transmission. Defender comes with a train response to dual range 4 wheel drive system. It has up to 291mm of ground clearance, a 900mm weighting depth, excellent approach and departure angles and will easily tow 3500 kilos. Price for the Defender XP400 starts at $145,166 with options plus the usual costs. I'm Rob Fraser. You're listening to Overdrive. Time to talk some of the more mysterious, if not quirky, news stories to do with motoring and transport. Brian Smith, g'day. How are you? Hi, David. I'm good. Let's go to the town of Kirkcudbright in uh, Scotland. Now, Brian, clearly a Viking longboat has knocked out power supplies in the south of the Scotland town. Now, Brian, you must tell me that cutting off the power is the first preemptive move to making an attack, is it not? Oh, indeed, David. I... This was a long boat. We cover boats, of course, in all forms of transport, but this one was also on wheels. Amphibians, Brian. They're putting <laughs> together amphibian devices in order to get a conquest of Scotland again, as they did starting back in 793. Do you think we should send a force to support them? I love the idea, David, that... Uh but, you know, the, the, the northerners of Scotland are again, like, frightened of Viking longboats <laughs> and, and the damage they can cause. Just a fantastic, a fantastic chill running sort of through the heritage of, uh, of that town, I think. Do you think it's a Trojan horse, so to speak? Oh, another fantastic one, David. Very good. Very good. Maybe, you know, it's just the, the sort of harbouring of the, of the first... The first of the, you know, a big reinstatement of, of uh, Viking raids. Yeah. And they caused, uh, you know, pretty substantial damage, probably, you know, possibly not on the scale of earlier Viking attacks, but uh, they certainly knocked out the, the town's power. And, and I guess the question is whether it's, uh, you know, accidental or, or on purpose, David. Oh, look, there's the standard sort of try and get away with it. They say it was a replica vehicle. And it was in uh, Cudbright as part of celebrations for the arrival of the Galloway uh, treasure hoard at the town's gallery. Brian, it was in St Mary Street. Now, you and I have talked about when the Vikings first invaded the little abbey in Lindisfarne. Yes. In 793. 
And that was then a, a new chapter of Norse control or involvement, major involvement, the age of the Vikings, they call it. Now, there was an abbey, right? And now this is St. Mary Street. No coincidence, Brian. You can't tell me that that isn't a direct reference to another invasion of the religious nature of the Scottish lands. I believe we should now be just ringing church bells, David, <laughs> to warn the populace. <laughs> Bring them into the walls of the town. They say they were taking the Viking replica thing near to the Stewartry Museum. Now, the famous collection there, one of the, the big items in the permanent collection, is the Scylla gun, which is Britain's earliest surviving sporting trophy, perhaps, made for shooting. So, look, it brings in sport. So, we are back to religion. <laughs> It undoubtedly, then, an undercurrent to the very things that we believe in. Some might say, David, some might say, <laughs> that this was just all an accident, that, uh, you know, they, they had this long boat on wheels, they wanted to move it. Interestingly, the people that were moving it said, you know, that actually looked about the route that they were going to, to travel along because they wanted to have the mast up hmm. for sort of dramatic effect. And they checked the path for low bridges but they forgot to think about power cables. And this, again, David, I think is like 8th, 9th, 10th century thinking. Hmm. Bridges, but, <laughs> but overlooking the power cables. So as they moved it, of course, you know, the mast of the ship got tangled in the power cables and uh, yeah, brought them down. So um, there was a bit of disruption there. They're sorry for the disruption caused that weekend. I'm not sure if they're ready to sort of apologise for what happened in the 700s, though. That was serious disruption. Well, you see, the thing is that they never encountered any power lines in 793, and so they weren't quite as ready this time. The, the Vikings misunderstood, perhaps, that they might do it. Now, you say it's coincidence. Was Archduke Ferdinand's uh, assassination a coincidence or just an unfortunate <laughs> thing, Brian? You've got to understand these things can lead to bigger conflicts. That's true. Do you think there'll be war between Scotland and Norway? <laughs> well, Norway's all going with electric vehicles, isn't it? So they cut off the power, right? Aha. So they themselves build up their own armies of electric vehicles, but then they cut off the power to, so that uh, Scotland can't defend itself. Can't call for help. You go back to sort of, uh, you know, fires on the headland. Brian, they never mentioned any names of uh, the people that might have been in charge. Because you go ah. back to 1263 and the Norwegian king, Hakon, Hakon Arson. Now, there's a name. So you can identify people and get a feel from where they're coming from mm. by their names, I think, uh, might be appropriate. We, we, you see, they're not reported. They're worried about starting uh, rumours going, going wild, that's my opinion. Or copycat attacks. By the way, the uh, longboat was towed on a trailer behind a, looks like a, a Mitsubishi ute. So perhaps we are mixing forms of travel from the old to the new. <laughs> they don't have anywhere called Pearl Harbour around there, do they? <laughs> All right, Brian, lovely to talk to you. Thank you very much. Thank you, David. Brian Smith talking about the conspiracies that are sheltered under the new forms of and old forms of transport. Overdrive. 
If you have a question, suggestion or comment, send an email to overdrive at drivenmedia.com.au. Subaru Outback is unique amongst SUVs in that it is more wagon-based rather than an upright SUV, yet has more ground clearance, capability and space than many others. The Outback has a true full-time premium active torque split all-wheel drive system that distributes optimal torque to the front and rear wheels depending upon road surface and driving conditions. They also feature a dual-mode X-mode that enhances Outback's all-wheel drive off-road performance. It rivals the Land Rover Discovery Sport, which is the closest SUV to the Outback in capability terms. Powered by a 2.5-litre boxer engine that delivers 138 kilowatts and 245 Nm, it drives through a CVT with an 8-step manual mode. provides adequate performance, but I would love to see a sport version. The interior of the latest version has a luxury ambience, and the vertical central screen is amongst the best in class, for its intuitive ease of use and clarity. In terms of SUVs, the Outback stands alone with its combination of safety, luxury, ride, handling, all-wheel drive capability and practicality. It's also outstanding value for money at around $47,790 plus the usual costs. I'm Rob Fraser. And this has been Overdrive. My thanks to Tony Weber, Alan Zervis, Brian Smith, Brianna Fraser, Rob Fraser and Paul Just for the help during the program. Overdrive is syndicated across Australia on the Community Radio Network. For more information, go to drivenmedia.com.au. All previous programs are available as podcasts on iTunes or Spotify, or there's our Facebook page, Overdrive City Driven Media. I'm David Brown. Thanks for listening.